You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of uh, lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. This is Lecture 1, entitled The Christmas Festival, Heralding the Victory of the Sun, S-U-N, given in Berlin on the 24th of December, 1905. How many people are there today who, as they walk through the streets at this season and see all the preparations made for the Christmas Festival, have any clear or profound idea of what it means. How seldom do we find evidence of any clear ideas about this festival, and even when they exist, how far removed they are from the intentions of those who once inaugurated the great festivals to bear witness to what is eternal and imperishable in the world. We can find ample proof of this simply by taking a look at those, quote, thoughts for Christmas, which close quote, which appear in our newspapers. Surely there can be nothing more dreary and at the same time more distant from the heart of the theme than the thoughts sent out into the world on printed pages in this way. Today we shall try to bring before our minds a kind of summary of the knowledge revealed to us by spiritual science. I do not, of course, mean any kind of pedantic summary. I mean a gathering together of all that the Christmas festival can bring home to our hearts if we regard spiritual science not as a dull grey theory, not as an outer confession, not as a philosophy, but as the very pulse of life within us. Nowadays we live as strangers within nature, far more so than we realize, far more even than in Goethe's day. Is there anyone who still feels the depth of words spoken by Goethe at the beginning of the vitally important Weimar period of his life? He addressed to him a prayer to nature in all her mysterious powers. Quote, nature. We are surrounded and embraced by her. We cannot draw back from her, nor can we penetrate more deeply into her being. She lifts us unasked and unwarned into the rhythms of her dance and whirls us away until we fall exhausted from her arms. We are embedded in her, yet are as strangers to her. She speaks to us unceasingly, but does not disclose her secret. We effect her continually, yet have no power over her. She is the greatest artist. Without any visible effort she brings forth the most consummate creations. In her is endless life, growth, and motion, yet she does not advance. She transforms herself endlessly, not for one moment does she remain still. She is constant, her step is measured, her laws unchangeable. Close quote. Steiner again. We are all nature's children, and when we think our actions least accord with her, it may be that we are then, in fact, in closest harmony with her, and with those laws flowing through her and streaming into us. And who today still really feels the depth of other significant words of Goethe, in which he tries to express the feeling of communion with the hidden forces common to nature and to the human being? 
I refer to that passage in title Faust, where Goethe addresses nature, not as the dead, lifeless being conceived of by materialistic thinkers of today, but as a living spirit. Quote, Spirit sublime, thou gavest me, gavest me all for which I prayed. Not unto me in vain hast thou thy countenance revealed in fire. Thou gavest me nature as a kingdom grand, with power to feel and to endure it. Thou not only cold, amazed acquaintance yieldst, but grantest that in her profoundest breast I gaze as in the bosom of a friend. The ranks of living creatures thou dost lead before me, teaching me to know my brothers in air and water and the silent wood. And when the storm in forests roars and grinds, the giant firs in falling, neighbor bow and neighbor trunks with crushing weight bear down, and falling fill the hills with hollow thunders. Then to the cave secure thou leadest me, then showest me mine own self, and in my breast the deep mysterious miracles unfold. Close quote, translation by Bayard Taylor. Standing again. Goethe was here trying to revive what had once existed as a unity of feeling and knowledge, in the days when wisdom itself was embedded in nature, in the times when the great festivals were inaugurated to bear witness to our place within nature and the universe. The festivals have become abstractions, matters of indifference to modern people. The word today is often something we swear allegiance by or so discord with, failing to recognize its original significance and power. Yet the alphabetical word ought to be the representative, the symbol of the word creative in nature around us and in the whole universe, and within us, too, when self-knowledge awakens. All mankind can be made conscious of this through the seasons and cycles of nature. It was for this that the festivals were instituted, and with the knowledge we have gleaned from spiritual science we will try to understand what it was that the wise men of old set out to express in the Christmas festival. Christmas is not a festival of Christendom only. In ancient Egypt, in the regions we ourselves inhabit, and in Asia, thousands and thousands of years before the Christian era, we find that a festival was celebrated on the days now dedicated to the celebration of the birth of Christ. What was the character of this festival, which since time immemorial has been celebrated all over the world on the same days of the year? Wonderful fire festivals were celebrated in ancient times among the Celts in Scandinavia, Scotland, and England by their priests, the Druids. What were they celebrating? They were celebrating the time when winter draws to its close and signs of spring slowly begin to appear. It is quite true that Christmas falls while it is still winter, but nature is already heralding a victory which we can celebrate in a festival of hope, of confidence and faith, to use words which are connected in nearly every language with the festival of Christmas. There is confidence that the sun, again in the ascendant, will be victorious over the opposing powers of nature. We have experienced the day shortening and drawing in as an expression of the dying, or rather of the falling asleep, of nature. 
the days grow shorter and shorter, up to the time of the Christmas festival, which our forefathers also celebrated, though in another form. Then the days begin to draw out again, and the light of the sun celebrates its victory over the darkness. In our age of materialistic thinking, this is an event to which we no longer give much consideration. In olden times it seemed to those in whom living feeling was united with wisdom to be an expression of an experience of the Godhead himself, the Godhead by whom their lives were guided. The solstice was a personal experience of a higher being, as personal an experience as when some momentous event forces us to come to a vital decision. And it was even more than this. The waxing and waning of the days was not only expression of an event in the life of a higher being, but a sign of something greater still, of something momentous and unique. This brings us to the true meaning of Christmas as a festival of the very highest order in cosmic and human life. In the days when genuine occult teaching was not disowned, as it is today by materialistic thought, but was for all people the very wellspring of life, the Christmas festival was a kind of memorial, a token of remembrance of a great happening on earth. At the hour of midnight the priests gathered around them their truest disciples, those who were the teachers of the people, and spoke to them of a great mystery. Parenthesis, I am not telling you anything that has been cleverly thought out or discovered by a process of abstract deduction, but what was actually experienced in the mysteries in the secret sanctuaries of those remote times. Close parenthesis. This mystery was connected with the victory of the sun over the darkness. There was a time on the earth when the light triumphed over the darkness, and it happened thus. Up until that time, all physical, all bodily life on earth had reached the stage of animality only. The highest kingdom upon the earth had only reached a stage at which it was preparing to receive something higher. And then there came that great moment in evolution when the immortal, imperishable soul of man descended. Life had so far developed that the human body was able to receive into itself the imperishable soul. The ancestors of the human race stood higher in the scale of evolution than modern scientists believe. But the higher part of their being, the divine spark, was not yet within them. The divine spark descended from a higher planetary sphere to our earth, which was now to become the scene of its activity, the dwelling place of the soul which was inseparably ours from that time on. We call these ancient ancestors of humanity the Lemurian race. They came from the Atlantean race, which was followed by our own, the Aryan race, into the bodies of the Lemurian race the human soul descended. Spiritual science speaks of this great event in human evolution as, quote, the descent of the divine sons of the spirit, close quote. Since then the human soul has been working in the body and bringing it to higher stages of development, but not at all in the way that the materialistic science imagines. At the time when the human soul was quickened by the Spirit, something happened in the universe, something that is one of the most decisive events in the evolution of mankind. In those remote ages, 
and this is contrary to what modern science teaches. A certain constellation of earth, moon, and sun gradually came about, one which made possible the descent of souls. It was not until then that the sun assumed the significance it now has in the process of man's growth and life upon the earth and of the other creatures belonging to the earth, the plants and animals. Only those who are able to form a clear idea of the process of the development of the earth and of mankind will understand this connection of sun, moon and earth with the human being's life upon the earth. There was a time when the earth was still united in one planetary body with sun and moon. The beings who dwelt upon this planet were different in appearance from those who inhabit the earth today. They lived in forms which were suited to the conditions of existence of this planetary body. The form and essential being of everything that lives upon our earth is determined by the fact that first the sun and then later the moon separated from the earth. From that time onward the forces and influences of these two heavenly bodies played down upon the earth from outside. This is the basis of the mysterious connection of the spirit of man with the spirit of the universe, with the Logos, in whom sun, moon, and earth are all contained. In this Logos we live and move and have our being. Just as the earth was born from a planetary body, in which the sun and moon were also contained, so is man, born of a spirit, of a soul which belongs alike to sun, moon, and earth. So, when we look up to the sun or to the moon, we should not only see external bodies in the heavens, but also the outer bodies of spiritual beings. This truth is lost to the materialism of our age. Those who cannot see in sun and moon the bodies of spiritual beings cannot recognize the human body as the body of the spirit. Just as truly as the heavenly bodies are the bodies of spiritual beings, so is the human body the bearer of the spirit. And we are connected with these spiritual beings, just as our body is separate from the forces of the sun and moon, and yet contains forces which are active in the sun and moon, so the spirituality which reigns in sun and moon is contained within our soul. We have evolved on earth into the beings we are, dependent upon the sun as the heavenly body from which the earth receives her light. And so in days of old our forefathers felt themselves to be spiritual children of the whole universe. And they said, quote, We have become men through the sun spirit, through the sun spirit from whom the spirit within us proceeded. The victory of the sun over darkness commemorates our soul's victory at the time when the sun first shone down upon the earth, when the immortal soul entered the physical body, descended into the darkness of desires, impulses, and passions. Close quote. Steiner again. Darkness preceded the victory of the sun, and this darkness had followed a previous sun age. So it was with the human soul. The soul proceeded from divine origins, but it had to sink for a time into the darkness where it could build up the vehicle for the human soul. By slow degrees the human soul itself built up the lower nature of man in order then to take up its abode in the dwelling place of its own construction.
You have a fitting image for the entry of the immortal soul into the human body. If you imagine an architect devoting all his powers to the building of a house in which he then lives. But in those remote ages, the soul could only work unconsciously on its dwelling place. This unconscious work can be expressed as, in quotes, darkness, whereas the awakening to consciousness, the lighting up of the conscious human soul, is expressed as a victory of the sun. And so to those who in olden times were still aware of man's living connection with the universe, the victory of the sun signified the great moment when they had received the impulse which was all essential for their earthly existence. This great moment was perpetuated in their festivals. In all ages, mankind's journey upon earth has been viewed as one whose goal was gradually to draw ever closer to the rhythmic, regular processes of nature. If we think of all that encompasses the life of the soul, of the course of the sun, and everything that is connected with it, we are struck by something that it is vital for us to feel and experience the rhythm and marvelous harmony of it in contrast to the chaos and lack of harmony in our own soul. We all know how rhythmically and with what regularity the sun appears and disappears, how regular and rhythmic all natural processes are which unfold under its influence. Imagine what a stupendous upheaval there would be in the universe if for a fraction of a second only the sun were to be diverted from its course. It is only because of this inviolable harmony in the course of the sun that our universe can exist at all. Upon this harmony, the rhythmic life process of all beings depends. Think of the annual course of the sun. Picture to yourselves that it is the sun which charms forth the plants in springtime, and then think how difficult it is to imagine the violet flowering out of due season. Seed time and harvest, everything, even the life of animals, is dependent upon the rhythmic course of the sun. Even in the human being, everything that is not connected with instincts, passions, or with ordinary thinking is rhythmic and harmonious. Think of the pulse or of the process of digestion, and you will feel the mighty rhythm and marvel at the wisdom implicit in the whole of nature. Compare with this the irregularity, the chaos of our passions, desires, and especially our ideas and thoughts. Think of the regularity of your pulse, your breathing, and then of the irregularity, the erratic nature of your thinking, feeling, and willing. Yet how wisely the powers of life enable rhythmic forces to prevail over chaos, and how greatly the rhythms of the human body are sinned against by man's passions and cravings. Those who have studied anatomy know how marvelously the heart is constructed and regulated, but also what a strain is put upon it by the drinking of tea, coffee, and spirits. There is wisdom in every part of the divine rhythmic nature, whose very soul is the sun with its regular rhythmic course. And as the wise men of old and their disciples looked upward to the sun, they saw in it the image of what their soul should become. The divine cosmic order was revealed in all its glory to the sages of old. The, in quotes, gloria in excelsis of the Christian religion expresses the same thing. 
The meaning of gloria is revelation, not glory in the sense of honor. Therefore, we should not say glory, honor, to God in the highest, but rather, today is the revelation of the divine in the heavens. The birth of the Redeemer makes us aware of the glory streaming through the wide universe. In earlier times, this cosmic harmony was placed as a great ideal before those who were to be leaders among their fellow human beings. Therefore, in all ages and wherever there was consciousness of these things, sun heroes were spoken of. In the temples and sanctuaries of the mysteries, there were seven degrees of initiation. I will speak of them as they were known in ancient Persia. The first stage was attained when a person's ordinary feeling and thinking was raised to a higher level, where knowledge of the Spirit was attained. Such a person received the name of, in quotes, raven. It was the ravens who informed the initiates in the temples what was happening in the world outside. When medieval poetic wisdom desired to depict in the person of a great ruler an initiate who amid the treasures of wisdom contained in the earth must await the great moment when newly revealed depths of Christianity rejuvenate mankind, when this poetic wisdom of the Middle Ages created the figure of Barbarossa, ravens were his heralds. The Old Testament, too, speaks of the ravens in the story of Elijah. Those who had reached the second stage of initiation were known as occultists. At the third stage they were warriors. At the fourth, lions. At the fifth stage of initiation a man was called by the name of his own people. He was a Persian, Indian, or whatever it might be. Only those who had reached the fifth degree of initiation were regarded as true representatives of their people. At the sixth stage, a man was a sun hero, or one who, quote, runs in the paths of the sun, close quote. And at the seventh stage, he was a father. Why was an initiate of the sixth degree known as a sun hero? To reach this level on the ladder of spiritual knowledge, he must have developed an inner life in harmony with the divine rhythms pulsating through the cosmos. His life of feeling and thinking must have rid itself of chaos, of all disharmony. His inner life of soul must beat in perfect accord with the rhythm of the sun in the heavens. Such was the demand made upon people at the sixth degree of initiation. They were looked upon as holy men, as ideals, and it was said that if a sun hero were to deviate from the path of spiritual harmony and constancy of soul, it would be as great a calamity as if the sun were to deviate from its course. A man whose spiritual life had found a path as sure as that of the sun in the heavens was called a sun hero, and there were sun heroes among all the peoples. Our scholars know remarkably little about these things. They are aware that sun myths are connected with the lives of all the great founders of religion, but what they do not know is that sun heroes were ordained at initiation ceremonies. It is not really so surprising that materialistic research should seek and find sun myths in connection with Buddha and Christ, but it fails to discover the process by which leaders became sun heroes.
mirroring the sun's great course in their lives and providing an ideal for others to follow. How did the ancients conceive of the soul of a sun hero who had reached this inner harmony? They believed that he was no longer inhabited solely by an individual human soul, something of the cosmic soul that permeates the entire universe had arisen within him. This cosmic soul was known in Greece as Krestos, in the sublime wisdom of the East as Budi. Those who no longer feel themselves only as bearers of an individual soul, but experience something of the universal soul, create within themselves an image of the union of the sun-soul with the human body, attaining a stage in the evolution of mankind which is of the very greatest significance. If we think of these men with all their nobility of soul, we shall be able to some extent to visualize the future of the human race and the way this future relates to our overall concept of humanity. As humanity is today, many things are settled by majority decisions after much argument and conflict. Wherever such resolutions are still regarded as the ideal, there is no understanding of what truth really is. Where does truth exist in us? Truth lives in that realm of our being where we think logically. It would be nonsense to decide by a majority vote that two times two equals four or that three times four equals twelve. When we have once realized what is true, millions may come and tell us it is not so, that it is this or it is that, but we will still have our own inner certainty. We have reached this point in the realm of scientific thinking of thinking upon which human passions, impulses, and instincts no longer impinge. Wherever passions and instincts mingle with thinking, people still find themselves involved in strife and dispute, in wild confusion. For the life of instincts and impulses is itself a seething chaos. When, however, impulses, instincts, and passions have been purged and transmuted, into what is known as Budi or Krestos, when they have developed to the level at which logical dispassionate thinking stands today, when our thinking and feeling have become purified to the extent that what one person feels resonates harmoniously with the feelings of others, then the ideals of ancient wisdom, of Christianity, of anthroposophy will be realized. It will then be as unnecessary to vote about what is held to be good, ideal, and right as it is to vote about what has been recognized as logically right or logically wrong. Every human being can place this ideal before their soul, which is also the ideal of the sun hero, the ideal before every aspirant at the sixth stage of initiation. The German mystics of the Middle Ages felt this and expressed it in a word of deep significance, quote, Vergottung, close quote, deification. This word existed in all ancient religions. What does it signify? There was a time when those whom we look upon today as the ruling spirits of the universe also passed through a stage at which mankind now stands, the stage of chaos, these ruling spirits wrestled through to the divine heights from which their forces now stream harmoniously through the universe. 
the harmony and regularity with which the sun moves through the seasons, manifesting in the growth of plants and in the life of animals, this regularity was once chaos. Harmony has been attained at the cost of great travail. Humanity stands today within the same kind of chaos. But out of the chaos there will arise a harmony modeled in the likeness of the harmony in the universe. When this thought takes root in our souls, not as a theory, not as a doctrine, but as living insight, then we shall feel the full anthroposophical significance of Christmas. If the glory, the revelation of the divine harmony in the heavenly heights is a real experience within us, and if we know that this harmony will one day resound from our own souls, then we can also feel what will be brought about in humanity itself by this harmony, peace among people of goodwill. These are the two feelings which arise at Christmas tide, this great vista of the divine ordering of the world, of the revelation, the glory of the heavens, can give us a premonition even now of that harmony which will one day reign in those who open their souls to it. The more abundantly the harmony of the cosmos fills the soul, the more peace and concord there will be upon the earth. The great ideal of peace stands there before us when at Christmas we contemplate the course of the sun. When we think about the victory of the sun over darkness during these days, there is born in us a great confidence and trust which unites our own evolving soul with the harmony of the cosmos, a harmony that does not flow into our souls in vain. And then the seed which brings to the earth that peace of which the religions speak takes root in the soul. The, quote, men of goodwill, close quote, are those who feel this peace. It is a peace which will spread over the earth. When in our life of feeling and in our souls that harmony reigns, which has been achieved today in the realm of reason alone, strife and discord will then give way to the all-pervading love of which Goethe speaks in his hymn to nature. Quote, a single draught from this cup of love will render us invulnerable, to a life of toil and stress. Close quote. In all religions, this Christmas feeling has been one of confidence, of trust, and of hope, because of a feeling that the light must prevail. Out of the seed planted in the earth, something will spring forth which seeks the light and will thrive in the light of the coming year. Just as the seed of the plant is cradled in the earth and matures in the light of the sun, so the divine truth, the divine soul itself, is immersed in the depths of the life of passion and instinct. There, in the darkness, this divine sun-soul must grow to maturity. Just as the ripening of the seed in the earth is made possible by the victory of light over darkness, so the continuing victory of light over the darkness of the soul will enable the light of the soul to triumph. And as truly as strife can only exist in the darkness and peace in the light, so with an understanding of the harmony in the universe there will come peace upon earth. Quote, glory on this day, revelation of the divine powers in the heavenly heights on this day, and peace to those who are of good will. Close quote. 
This was the awareness which led the Christian Church in the fourth century to celebrate the birth of the Savior of the world on the same days of the year on which the victory of light over darkness had been celebrated by all the great religions. Up to the fourth century, the festival of the birth of Christ had been a movable feast. It was not until the fourth century that it was decided to place the date of the Savior's birth on the day on which this victory of the light over the darkness had always been commemorated. And so Christianity is in harmony with all the great world religions. When the Christmas bells ring out, they are a reminder to us that this festival was celebrated all over the world, wherever human beings knew what it signified, wherever they understood the great truth that the soul of man is involved in a process of development and progress on this earth, wherever there was a true striving for self-knowledge. We have not been speaking today of an undefined, abstract feeling for nature, but of a feeling that is full of life and spirituality. And if we think of what has been said in connection with Goethe's words, quote, Nature, we are surrounded and embraced by her, close quote, it is quite obvious that we are not speaking here in any materialistic sense, but that we see in nature the outward expression, the countenance of the divine spirit of the cosmos. Just as the physical is born out of the physical, so are the soul and the spirit born out of the divine soul and the divine spirit. The body is connected with purely material forces, and the soul and spirit with forces akin to their own nature. The great festivals exist to bear witness to our connection with the whole universe, and to help us use our powers of feeling and thinking in such a way that we become fully aware of this connection. When this insight lives within us, the festivals will change their present character and become living realities in our hearts and souls. They will be points of focus in the year, uniting us with the all-pervading spirit of the universe. Throughout the year we fulfill the common tasks and duties of daily life, but at these festival times we turn our attention to the links which bind us with eternity. And although daily life is fraught with many a struggle, at these times a feeling awakens within us that above all the strife and turmoil there is peace and harmony. Festivals are the commemoration of great ideals, and Christmas is the birth feast of mankind's highest ideal, which we must strain every nerve to attain if we are to fulfill our destiny the birth festival of all that we can feel, perceive, and will. Such is Christmas when it is truly understood. Anthroposophical spiritual science wishes to contribute to a true and deep understanding of the Christmas festival. We do not want to promulgate a dogma or a doctrine or a philosophy. Our aim is that everything we say and teach, everything that is contained in our writings, in our science, shall pass over into life itself. This will happen when we practice spiritual science in our daily lives, no longer even needing to speak of it. The living wisdom of the Spirit will then resound everywhere, from pulpits far and wide, in courts of law, where the deeds of human beings will be viewed with spiritual perception, in hospitals where doctors will perceive and heal spiritually, in schools where teachers will form spiritual perceptions about the growing child. 
when people in all walks of life and in all places think, feel, and act spiritually so that doctrines about spiritual science become superfluous, our ideal will have been attained. Then, too, there will be a spiritual understanding of the great turning points of the year, and our everyday experiences will be truly linked with the spiritual world. The immortal, eternal, spiritual sun will shine into the soul at the great festivals, reminding us of our divine self. This divine, higher, sun-like self will prevail over darkness and chaos, will give us the peace of soul by which all the strife, all the war and all the discord of the world can be assuaged. Footnote at the end of this lecture. We cannot here enter into details of the wise teachings of Christianity itself, which will form the subject of a later lecture. But this much shall be said today, that nothing could be more correct than to place at this time the birth festival of that divine individuality who is to the Christian a guarantee and an assurance that his divine soul will ultimately prevail over the darkness in the outer world. The end of Lecture 1